0: Well, this evening we look to Lord's Day 34, which calls us, well, it presents the law as a whole to us, but it also calls us to honor the first commandment. As we prepare to look at that, I'd like to read with you Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 comes right after the second setting forth of the Ten Commandments, the second time that Moses brings those ten before the people, And there he says, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel... And be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and His testimonies and His statutes which He has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us, if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us. Amen. Now, Lord's Day 34. Remember, the end of Lord's Day 33 asked us, what is it that we do that is good, right? What are good works? And we heard that good works are those which arise out of true faith, which are done for God's glory and which conform to His law, right? So it asks us in Lord's Day 34, what is God's law? And in answer, our catechism recites the Ten Commandments. Now, we've heard those today. We won't read all of those, but we hear those Ten Commandments. And we're asked, how are those commandments divided? The answer is, into two tables The first has four commandments, teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments, teaching us what we owe our neighbor. And then we come to the first commandment. Remember that commandment says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? that I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures, that I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, and look to God for every good thing humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way? Well, that leads us to the final question. The heart of the first commandment is a commandment against all idolatry. So what is idolatry? And the answer is, idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts, in place of or alongside of, the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. And really that is the heart of the first commandment. Beloved disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you think about jealousy? Is jealousy a good thing or a bad thing? Is it an emotion we should cultivate or one that we should shun? How... Are we to regard jealousy? Most of the time I think we regard jealousy as an emotion of immaturity, maybe even of sin. We associate jealousy with the hot-headed young man who gets all bent out of shape and wants to fight when some guy looks sideways at his his girl, even though she's not really his girl because he hasn't manned up and put a ring on her finger. Right? We see how he's ready to fight, he's ready to throw down, but but he hasn't committed to her, right? We think of jealousy in those terms, and that can be, at very least, a a response of immaturity. But that doesn't mean that jealousy is always wrong. That kind of jealousy, when we're jealous for ourselves, for that which we regard as our possessions, as our right, that jealousy's bad. But when we're, jealousy, or we're jealous for the purity, for the reputation, for the well-being of the one whom we love, well that's a good thing. Jealousy is a proper emotion. when a husband is acting out of jealousy for the well-being or the reputation of his wife, or when a citizen is jealously defending the honor of his country, or when a coach is jealously defending the name of his team, such expressions of jealousy are proper because they reflect God's righteous jealousy for his people. He loves us, and therefore God is jealous for us. He's unwilling to allow us to be led astray by that which is not a God. He's unwilling for us to be slandered by the one whose very name means slanderer. God is jealous for His people, and He wants us, His children, to be jealous for Him. And that's what the first commandment calls us to be. God calls His children to love Him exclusively, passionately, jealously. That's our theme. God calls His children to love Him exclusively. Now that calling has a negative side and a positive side. We'll look at the negative side first because that's what God's word does. And that negative side indicates that this is a commandment calling us to despise every substitute hope. Exodus 20. Again, we hear that commandment. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That is packed with significance. At the start, God recalls His relationship with us. He is our God. The God whom we acknowledge and confess as being our God. The one who established us as His people. The God whom we serve and worship and by whom we identify ourselves. He is the one who brought us out of our slavery. He's talking to old Israel here, recalling for them something that wasn't very far in the past. You were slaves for 430 years in Egypt. You were regarded as the possessions of that great nation Egypt. And I brought you out from there. You didn't raise a finger. You didn't assist. You didn't help. I brought you out from there and made you my people according to my promises and my might. And he says the same thing to us. Because we were slaves. We were slaves to our sin, which held us captive from our earliest moments. We were slaves to the world and our fear of the opinions of men. We were slaves to death and the fear of death, which holds captive every man, woman, and child from their earliest days. We were held as captive as they were, even though our chains weren't made of steel. But He delivered us without us raising a hand, without us doing one thing. And He has made us His people, the spiritual heirs of old Israel. In fact, the true Israel in Christ. Even as God freed them from their physical slavery, He in Christ has freed us from our spiritual slavery. And this is the basis on which we serve God. Since He delivered us from our slavery, we know we can trust Him. I mean, he gave us our freedom. He gave us the assurance of a future that is beautiful and wonderful. We have no reason not to trust this God. He gave us life. He gave us every gift we've attained, we've, we've obtained. We have every reason to trust him, and every reason to be thankful for him. Kids, I want you to think about that. Sometimes we talk about counting our blessings. You start that process. You're going to be there a long time. It's a good thing. Start with the fact that you're alive. God is the one who knit together every cell in your body and did so in a way to make you unique from every other person, not just physically, but in terms of your character, in terms of your emotion, in terms of your gift, in terms of your knowledge. He's the one who gave you your family, your parents, your nation, Your freedoms, your gifts, your insights, all of that, it's not really yours, it's His. He gave it to you, entrusted it to you. We ought to be the most thankful people because He has given all of that. To us, And so on the basis of that, on the basis of the fact that He delivered us from our slavery, and that in fact He has given us everything we have, made us everything we are, He says, you shall have no other gods before Me. Now He's not saying that we may have other gods as long as He's the first. No. The command is, you may not have any other gods. Because no matter where we are or what we're doing, we are before Him. Right? So if we serve another God, we are doing it before Him. And He says, you must not do that. We are called to despise every substitute. This is a command that stands in opposition to idolatry. You heard the definition. Having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God. Fundamentally, idolatry is a matter of trust. Whom will you trust to provide for your needs? Whether your daily needs or your eternal needs. From whom will you seek help when you're going through a hard time? Who or what gets the credit when you have a triumph? Whom do you trust? Ultimately there are two choices. You can trust the true God. The one who made you. The one who formed you. The one who upholds you every day. You can trust that God and give Him the credit for whatever good comes to you. And trust in Him whenever hard things come to you. Or, option two, you can trust anyone or anything else. You can trust yourself. You can trust your family. You can trust the government. You can trust experts. You can trust friends. You can trust them alone, or you can try to pair them up with the true God. It doesn't matter, it's all idolatry. And it's absolutely hateful to God. But it's a temptation that God knew His people would face. That's why He gave us this entire chapter of Deuteronomy 6. This instruction is given to God's people as they're about to enter the promised land. Now, it was relatively easy for them to trust God and trust Him alone when they're out in the wilderness. Not a whole lot of other options, not a whole lot of other influences. And yet they still struggled. But now they're going into the promised land. and So he gives them all these warnings. Verses 10 through 12, he warns them against forgetting God. They're out in the wilderness every morning when they want their food, when their bellies are rumbling, they have to go out and get the food that God miraculously placed all around the camp called manna, which means, what is it? A miraculous food that appeared every morning for them to eat. Precisely the amount that they needed. Pretty easy to trust God when that's the case. But now they're coming into a land where they're going to work for their food. They're going to go out and they're going to till this rich soil and they're going to grow abundant crops of grain. They're going to go out into these orchards and prune the trees and get the fruit from the trees and store them up and celebrate. And then they're going to go into their vineyards and gather abundant bunches of grapes. They're going to raise their livestock they're going to live in houses they didn't build, cities they didn't establish. Enjoying the infrastructure that other people established and they're going to be tempted. Say, we, we picked us a good land. Boy, it's a good thing we were stronger than those people. And look at all the things that we've done with it. How we've made it better. How we've made it more. And God says, don't do that. You didn't bring yourself here. You didn't accomplish all those things. You did. It wasn't you. If you possess something, if you've seen the increase of something, that's because God has blessed you and God alone. Don't you dare take the credit that belongs to God. He deserves the glory. And then verses 14 and 15 Warned explicitly against serving false gods. That's idolatry proper. This land was filled with false gods. Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, Moloch. Nothing angers God more than when His people, who are called by His name, serve these false gods that are not gods, that are weak, because they don't exist. That are flawed, because they're made after the image of men. No, we don't have Baal and Asherah. We have Allah from Islam. We have the false gods of the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and Hinduism and Buddhism and all the rest of those foolish, man-centered religions. Obviously, that's offensive to God. But then there's another kind of idolatry, verses 16 through 18. The idolatry of rebellion. Not the idolatry of serving a false God who stands in place of the true God, but the idolatry of exalting me. Of daring to say that I get to pick and choose which parts of this I believe are authoritative over my life. The idolatry of Daring to complain that God has not treated me as he should, has not given me what he ought, has not provided the lot that is best for me. And that, young people, I'm going to pick on you a little bit because you're learning. When you complain about how cruddy your job is, you complain about how dumb your parents are. When you mutter and grumble and wish you lived in a different place among different people had different stuff, that's idolatry. Because you're claiming that you know better than God. You're claiming that you would have done better than God. You're claiming that you have the right to judge God and you don't. That's idolatry. And as the children of God, as those whom. God himself is freed from our slavery. We must reject that idolatry. Every age brings new forms of temptations to idolatry, but they're really just different forms of the same sin. Our catechism mentions sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or other creatures. That doesn't tempt most of us. Sure, once in a while we'll get an absolutely foolish, rebellious covenant kid who decides to dive into Wiccanism, or somebody who has no knowledge of history, and goes into Roman Catholicism. But that's rare. We're tempted by camouflaged false religions. Socially promoted false religions. Think about Eastern mysticism. I doubt there's anybody in this room, I hope not, who would extol reincarnation as the means by which we got here. Talking about their former life. We know that's foolish. We know that's a false religion. But what about paying it forward, working on good karma? We hear that language all the time and far too often from church folks. But folks, that is just as much Eastern mysticism as reincarnation. It's rooted in Hinduism. And that kind of baloney doesn't belong in the mouths of God's people. Likewise, yoga one of the most popular exercise forms in our culture today. And it's bound up with Hinduism. Yoga means to combine. It's intended that exercise and the mental preparation that is involved in it is intended to empty yourself of yourself so that you can combine yourself with the universe which they believe is God so that you can enter into the divine being. That's what yoga is. You can't separate that out. And that's not trivial. To dabble in yoga or to pursue good karma is to dip one's toes in the poison pool of Hinduism with its pantheistic conception of God. And you cannot do that without deeply offending, rightly offending, the true God. But again, that's not our biggest temptation. We can see that one. You know what we have a blind spot for? Trusting in men. Relying on my expert who can fix it all. Relying on my guys in government who can make it all better. Relying in my system, which if we could just adopt this system, all the problems would go away, or at least the big ones. My guy, my man, or my method. Things aren't going the way I think they should, so I gotta manipulate them. I gotta turn them. The ends justify the means. And so I'm gonna do what's necessary to get people on my side, to bring people around to my way of thinking, to turn them against those who stand against me. But folks, that is relying on man, not God, and that is idolatry. It's the idolatry of me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. I'll figure it out. I'll make it happen. I might need some help from God, but I'm in charge. I got this. That is idolatry. And it must go out of the lives of God's people. That's hard. It's hard. Because it's built into us by our sinful nature. The only way we will cast out that wicked idolatry Of relying on men, of fearing men, of trusting in ourselves and making ourselves the God in whom we trust. The only way we will get rid of that is if our love for God is stronger. God calls us, as our catechism rightly says, to renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. And guys, that is hard. You're desperately seeking a job, coming out of college or coming out of high school. You know what you want to do and there just doesn't seem to be anybody in that always the way. It doesn't seem anybody's hiring for the job you want to do. And then you find the job. But you've got to work on the Lord's day. So what's more important? Because you know and I know that you can find a way to justify it in your own mind. To make it seem essential. But is it? Or are you putting that before God? Are you willing to renounce that job for the sake of putting God first? Or you find that girl or that guy, just the one? Oh man, just makes your heart go pitter patter. Not really any kind of relationship with the Lord, but she's so beautiful and so fascinating. And I can't believe she likes me. Are you willing to put God first? Or is that girl your God? Are you willing to suffer for Him? Are you willing to proclaim the truth about God even when, not if, when our government declares it illegal and threatens fines and prison time like they've done in Canada already for proclaiming the truth. Are you willing to do away with your reputation, to do away with your business, to do away with your riches for the sake of putting God first? Again, we will not, cannot do that unless our love for God is greater than our love for all that other stuff, for our reputation, for our work, for our riches, for ourselves, even for our families. But that's really the heart of this commandment. That our love for God, our dependence on God has to be greater. And that's the other thing that we see here. See, this commandment isn't only, although it's explicitly about what we need to reject, You shall not have any other gods before me. The heart of the commandment is about what we love. God calls us to delight in serving Him, in pleasing Him, in loving the true God. That's the heart of what we learn from Deuteronomy 6, isn't it? All the commands, all the prohibitions, all the warnings, all of its centers, right at the very start. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's the heart of Deuteronomy 6. That's the heart of the first commandment. It's the calling to delight in His sovereign help. When we think about and understand, if we go on autopilot, we will violate this command every time. If we just do what needs to be done in the moment, we don't think about why we're doing what we're doing or how we're doing it. We don't intentionally look to God as the source of all our our good. We don't go out of our way to praise God as the source of all our good. We will violate this commandment because we're not cultivating that love. Men, if every day you get up and you go to work and you don't think about how your wife has blessed you, And every day you come home and you sit down and you eat the meal that she's made for you and you sit at that table with those children whom she has disciplined all day long and tolerated all day long. And you don't think about any of that. You just ask to please pass another round of the main entree. And you go about doing your stuff and you don't think about your wife and all that she's done for you. Well, she's not going to be loved the way she needs to be loved, is she? But if you stop and think about all the ways she serves you, all the ways she blesses you, all the ways she has really delighted you, well, you're going to start bringing her chocolate. You're going to start giving her a warm embrace when you get home. You're going to start telling her of your appreciation, and so it is all the more so with God. There is nothing we have that is not from Him. And not just here and now, He's given us eternity in a home that is far more glorious than this. It's springtime. It's pretty glorious out there. You're getting better every day. And that isn't even the slightest foretaste of what is to come. And if we stop to think about that, if we stop to ponder how generous, how gracious, how wonderful He has been, we won't be able to silence our praise. Amen? And that's what we're called to do in this commandment. Psalm 95, it's a call to worship. And that psalm says, come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make joyful music. On what basis, for what reason should we worship Him? Because our Lord is a great God and the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are His, the sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry ground. He is the one who owns it all, and He has loved us, cared for us enough to give us of its bounty that we might live and thrive. Therefore, worship the Lord your God. Look at your blessings and worship the Lord. Consider your goodness and worship the Lord. And when you start doing that, you're guaranteed to come to the true blessing. Ephesians 1, He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He chose us. He called us. He loved us. He saved us. Psalm 95 doesn't stop at talking about God the Creator and God the King. It also says... Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His land. He's made us His. He delights in us. He cherishes us. And therefore, we must worship Him. question is how. How do we worship Him? How do we cultivate that love so that we can show Him our devotion? first way is by honoring him as the only God that's why Deuteronomy 6 starts the way it does it reminds them in the introduction these commandments come from God and therefore you're good but then it introduces them again to God here O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one there's only one God You're about to enter a land that's filled with all these false gods. They're all lies. They're all figments of men's imaginations. They're all distractions. There is one God and one God only. And it's Him you should serve and Him you shall learn and Him you shall teach to your children. There is only one God. So look to Him, trust Him, serve Him. Verse 13, It is the Lord your God whom you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. We need to look to him always as the only one who can help us, and then we need to seek his help. So many ways that we need guidance in this life. You know what the idolater does? The idolater relies on himself, makes his choice surrounds himself with people who agree that's exactly what you should do that's not what we're called to when we have that hard decision to make we're to fall to our knees and to acknowledge like we saw this morning with Moses I'm not sufficient I'm too weak I don't have the the wisdom I don't have the strength I don't have the insight there's so many parts to this that I don't even know and so we pray for his guidance and his help and his blessing and Then we look to the guidance of others. Because his word says there is wisdom in a multitude of counselors. So rather than just trusting in ourselves, we go and ask wise men with whom he has surrounded us. And then we come back and we decide what needs to be done. Trusting that he will guide us and the people he's surrounded us with will guide us. We don't act alone. We don't put ourselves on the throne. We seek his help. And then we show our love not only seeking his help but obeying him. Trust Him and then obey. That's why God gave His people His law. Yes, it shows us our sin. We need that. But it also shows us what is good. Children, sometimes when your parents tell you don't do this and don't do that, that gets you kind of annoyed. You didn't really know you wanted to do that until they said you couldn't do it. Now you really want to do it, right? Right? That's the rebellious part of us. But you know your parents love you. And so if they tell you don't do that, they have a reason for it. Maybe they know something you don't. Probably they do. Well, if that's true with your parents, it's certainly true with God. When he tells us, honor your father and your mother, you think, but they're so out of it, they totally don't get it. Yeah, well, you know what? That doesn't matter. Because it's not really about honoring your father and your mother. It's about learning to honor God. He tells you don't kill. And you think, but that person. But if if you knew what he did, doesn't matter. God is the one who pours out his care and his kindness even on those who hated him. And he calls us to reflect him. It's not about that person. It's about reflecting God. And so all of his law is. We obey his law because that's how we learn to reflect who God is. You shall diligently, verse 17, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you and you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you. He's not saying if you do this, if you do X, Y, and Z, then I will pay you, I will reward you, you will have earned. He's not saying that. He's saying this law, it's the road map. If you want life to be everything it could possibly be, if you want life to be filled with blessing and goodness, this is how to do it. He's the one who invented it. He knows. So if we would honor Him, we follow Him, we follow His commandments. And then we need to pass that on to our children. What greater way can we show love for God than by teaching our children to know, to love, to confess, to serve, to honor the living God? So the Lord urges us. Verse 21. You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders. What's he doing there? He's calling God's people to teach their children their history. You didn't arise in a vacuum and you're not the center of the universe. He is. And your forefathers were slaves and you were born a slave. And God delivered us through Jesus. God delivered us through the Holy Spirit. God delivered us through His Word. God gave us freedom through His power. And therefore we serve Him. Therefore we trust Him. Therefore we obey Him. Therefore we confess Him. They need to know who they are. That they're not just Americans and they're not just Barneses or whatever your name is but that they are Christians and that is the heart of their identity. They are servants of the God who freed them from their slavery and promised them eternal life. We need to teach them that from the word go and the best way we can teach them, we've got to explain it to them, certainly. We've got to show them. Mom and Dad, if you aren't longing for the Lord's Day, if you aren't delighting in the worship of God, if you aren't spending time daily in God's Word, if you aren't doing your work in a way that reflects the character of God, I'm not saying you've got to be perfect, but if you're not striving to keep your anger under control, if you're not striving to speak in a way that honors God rather than a way that reflects the world, if you're not working hard to be upright and honorable in the way that you behave in front of your children... They're going to know it's all a lie. It's all an act. It doesn't really mean anything. That's why he says in verses 6 and following, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Let them be real to you. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as signs on your hand, the way that you act. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, the, the things you allow yourself to see. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate, that which identifies you. And when they see how much God means to you, they'll know it's real. And God will use the amazingly powerful sermon that you preach with your life to excite in them something your words are incapable of. Now those words are important. Essential. But if they're not supported by the sermon of your life, they mean nothing. My friends, God loves the love of His people. You shall have no other gods before me. That's, that's not something meant to constrain us. That's something meant to free us from what would enslave us so that our lives can be filled with that which crowns them with significance. The love, the devotion to, the worship of the true and living God whose image we were made to bear, whose name we were made to confess, whose glory we were made to extol. So we need to cast off all of those false gods that would pollute us from that. And we need to cultivate in ourselves, in our children, in one another, a love, a devotion toward the true and living God. And our lives will be far more significant than this world could ever make them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have given us this high and a holy calling to know and love and serve and reflect you. Open our eyes to the idolatries to which we are tempted. Especially the idolatry of rebellion and the idolatry of, of the fear of man and the idolatry of self. Teach us to root them out and cast them off. And teach us to trust you, to love you. To worship and confess and serve you alone. That we might show the world that you are the true and living God who deserves all our praise. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, let's stand and sing together. Hymn number 229 from our Trinity Psalter Hymnal. 229. Holy God, we praise your name.